Today we are continuing our series called In the Beginning, Jesus. Today's passage is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, and this sermon is entitled, This Be the Curse. Okay, I hired a gardener this week, and I hired a gardener because my sense of order is different than the sense of order that my yard naturally has unless I constantly and consistently tend it. I hope that makes some sense. So, my sense of order says it should be one thing. The yard sense of order says something else. And I'll give you an example. We have a peach tree. We like the peaches when the squirrels let us have some, and we like to eat them, but here's the weird thing about our peach tree. It grows limbs much longer than it can make use of, and then it fills them with fruit until it's bending, and yes, it breaks the limbs that it grew extra and put extra fruit on. Left untended, the peach tree will break its arms off, producing fruit. It's a little odd, isn't it? There's more wrong in the world than just some chaos in my yard, although it looks much nicer now that the gardener has done a first pass on it. And there's much more chaos in the world, much more wrong with the world than what's in my family, what's in my job. But we're going to look at the earth, the family, and the job today because this passage is about what's wrong with the world. What can we do about it? Well, we'll talk a little bit about that and how will it all turn out Let's talk about that too. So when Pastor Tim preached last week, the text talked about Adam and Eve's rebellion, their sin, rebellion against God. Today, we'll look at what God says in response to their sin, and we'll look at first what the curse reveals. So what the curse reveals starts in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. What had the serpent done? Talk to Adam and Eve into their rebellion. Okay. The serpent was already God's enemy, seeking a way to further rebellion against him. The serpent was already humankind's enemy, getting them sideways with God. God's enemy has now, at God's word, been cursed. The curse didn't create this enmity. It's a response to what the serpent has done. Okay, so God says, here is justice for what you've done. And in the Old Testament especially, curse means death, Blessing means life. Those are expressed in different ways, the the life and death, and it gets more complicated in the New Testament, but curse means death, blessing means life. Note that this story isn't an etiological tale, which is how a folklorist would talk about this kind of literature. It's what we would call, you and I and Spider-Man would call an origin story. Uh, That's what uh, Rudyard Kipling would call a just-so story. That's not what this is. This isn't an origin story like how the snake lost his legs. Okay, how do I know? Because Genesis doesn't say 
this serpent used to have legs. In fact, what Genesis does say is that the serpent will crawl on its belly. What, what do you know of something that crawls on its belly? Well, it's low. And yeah, this is a low-down, dirty scoundrel here. I mean, I'm short, but I'm not that short. Genesis says the serpent will eat dust, but snakes don't eat dust. So this is more like, eat my dust, serpent. Crawl on your belly. Eat my dust. Satan will never get what he really wants, what we in our pride want, glory for ourselves. This passage is less about how humans react to snakes, even though I think the writer is kind of riffing on that. But back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Pastor Tim pointed out the blame game that they were caught in. The woman you put here with me, he accuses God with. That's dangerous stuff, accusing God. And Eve blames the serpent. It's a bad look for her, but yeah, the serpent is partly to blame. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent's offspring, now remember this isn't an origin story, so this isn't all snakes. The serpent's offspring are those who rebel against God. The woman's offspring isn't humankind in general. It's he, and singular, one who will crush the serpent's head and whose heel will be stricken. God points to a future costly and decisive W over the rebellious, crafty serpent. God is going to be victorious, and he's going to do it through the woman's offspring, one of them. To the woman, he said in verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So speaking of offspring, they're going to come with painful labor. This one is an origin story. It claims to be one. And all the moms said, thanks, Eve. What this curse is about is relational wreckage. The team that was intended by God from the beginning to function as a team won't function properly anymore. There's going to be brokenness in there. And human relationships have been broken ever since sin from their original design. And whether you're married or not, whether your family of origin was pretty good or not, whether you've got good coworkers, friends, and neighbors or not, you know this to be true because we all know how broken human relationships can be and even often are. How does that come into play? Well, God says your desire will be for your husband. And that seems a bit ambiguous. Does it mean that the woman will put her identity in relationship status? If it says single next to her name on social media, then she's going to feel bad about herself? Does it mean that the woman will have a desire for his place of responsibility? Both of these things can be true separately or together. And even more things can be going on than this. But the central key rather than drilling into the possibilities, is the relationship dynamic has been changed. It's been altered by sin. And no longer will relationships work fully to God's design specification. Uh, 
I used to have a torque wrench, which I would use when I was tightening certain bolts to a certain tightness. And one day, I foolishly dropped the wrench, and it never read accurately again. So it no longer worked as designed. I could still put the bolts in, and it would still read something, but it wasn't going to be accurate, and so it wasn't serving the way it was intended. And sin has damaged man-woman relationships, family relationships, interpersonal relations in a similar way. He will rule over you in verse 16 is really menacing sounding. It sounds like the tendency of men to command without caring. Now, do all men do this? No, I don't think so. Do all men who do do it, do it all the time? No, I don't think that either. And yet you have to look at the world and say, do I see a tendency toward that? Yeah. But it also reflects a new universal tendency. Sin produced a tendency for humans to exploit one another. So instead of being a, a perfect partnership, a custom design team, now there's competition. There's uh, dialing back when we should be dialing up. There's all kinds of potential breakages in relationship, especially in marriage. And exploitation happens in relationships all the time which wasn't what God created relationships for. But exploitation doesn't just happen in marriage or in family. It happens in work because work has been wrecked too. And we'll move on to that now. Remembering that work existed before sin, but it was dramatically changed by sin. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit, from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Adam's sin cursed the ground, and the ground said, Thanks, Adam. This is what makes the ground difficult to work. I think this is what makes my peach tree suicidal, in a sense, or committing mayhem on itself. There's a disorder in nature. There's a disorder in work that sin created. What it produces, what the earth produces, is an ideal. Thorns and thistles grow better in my yard than the vegetables I try to grow. You can grow food, but it'll be hard. It'll take constant effort constant work, apparently more work than Adam ever experienced before. Most of all, you won't be eating the fruit provided for you in the garden God made for you. And that's, God set everything up perfectly. And in a grasp for power of their own, Adam and Eve brought on something that means everything's harder than it was intended to be. Sin, it, it introduced nothing better. It only brought worsening. No freedom, no control, no improvement. Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. After all that labor to survive, you'll experience the indignity of breathing out your last breath and begin in your body to turn to soil again. 
you were made for more than this. I was made for more than this. But now you and I are going to become dust at that time. And the curse of death started instantly, even though it wasn't fully experienced that day. When God said in that day, you shall surely die, he wasn't kidding. And they began to feel the effects of sin and its paycheck death immediately with more to come. There are so many losses that humanity experiences on this day, this day of sin, when the man and woman tried to rebel against God. But scripture will tell many, many more stories about the losses humanity experiences, and we have experienced many of those losses ourselves. Okay. The next little section uh, are outcomes from here. And we start in verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Verse 20. In naming her, Adam does two things. He first honors her because she is to be the mother of all the living. All the living people, she's going to be their mom and grandmom and great-grandmom and so on. But he's also identifying Eve uh, in two ways by this superpower, because she's the only one who's going to be the mother of, of all the people, except for Adam. Notice that naming her for her superpower also makes her curse of painful childbearing part of her identity. This mother of the living, it's a reminder of the curse. And all I have to say about that is beware any identity that isn't given to you by God through the work of Jesus. So many times we pick up what somebody else says and we appropriate it as though it were true about ourselves. And even if we don't intend to, it's there talking to us. And here, Adam, I don't think intended to remind her of their sin. And yet it's part of what that name means because her superpower is two-edged. All right, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Verse 21, the animals are now paying the price for Adam and Eve's sin. So all the animals say, thanks, Adam and Eve. Nonetheless, Adam and Eve need protection in this new life, and God doesn't just leave them be. God provides for them. It's a costly provision but God provides for them. Verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The garden could apparently allow them to live forever. But they'd be living forever in this state of sin and rebellion. Ah, my friend Peter Roth used to say all the time, you call that living? This seems to me like an act of mercy. God doesn't allow Adam and Eve to be stuck forever in this broken state. Whatever comes next, it's not going to be because God was passive and let them stumble into the worst possible outcome. Verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, uh, or the entrance, the front, 
a cherubim, that's angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The garden can't be re-entered. Angels and a sword of light that's flashing at them are set to prevent that from happening. And there's no going back. There is no way back to Eden from here. There's no way back. Just sit and think about that for a second. There is no way back to Eden. That path is broken. It's barred. It's guarded. And it's guarded for our own good. And I've been thinking about other kinds of expression of this kind of hopeless circumstance we have. And maybe you can think of some ones that are better than mine, and I'd be happy to hear what you come up with. But here are some non-religious ideas about hopeless futures that come to my mind. One is, uh, in, in non-Christian and sometimes Christian thought, uh, writers of dystopic novels, creators of dystopic movies, futures that are really broken and dark. And the thing is about these, oftentimes they will end on a hopeful note that a change in society or a change in leadership is going to make the difference. But I think of another example, and I think the Who had it right when they said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. They thought we wouldn't get fooled again, and yet what they say at the end of the song is, yeah, we're going to get fooled again. Okay, so we bring it on ourselves, even in cultural references. I thought of another one zombie movies. These are among the bleakest of, of uh, movies, I think, because many, not all, many of them end on a completely hopeless note. Uh, if anyone survives, they are still utterly surrounded, cut off from anybody who can help them by brain-eating maniacs. Um, that's an unsurvivable scenario. Uh, it's hardly one in which one would want to try to survive, perhaps. I uh, spent a couple of years studying electrical engineering and computer science, and so one of the things that came to mind was the second law of thermodynamics. When I was a kid, they said that that meant that things tended to disorder. These days, it has more to do specifically with entropy, and I'll just say this. The way I read the second law of thermodynamics is uh, in certain systems, y you can't get back to the state that you were in without something else happening. So things can change in one direction and they can't change in the other direction. Okay, that might work for some people. It might not work for everybody. Well, I spent a couple of years as an English major. So my favorite way in, that I've come up with that this is expressed in uh, non-Christian, non-Jewish literature is the 20th century English librarian and poet, Philip Larkin in a poem he called This Be the Verse, and I've modified it for use in the sermon because its language isn't suitable for, for this venue. So um, caveat there, and uh, Larkin was an atheist, so I don't think I need to apologize to him. He passed away years ago. They pass the curse, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had, and add some extra, just for you. But they were curse passed in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats.
Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Okay, this gentle, atheist, unmarried, anxious, childless, jazz-loving man whose parents had an awkward marriage, Larkin voiced a despair, not just for himself or the life in his, his parents that he saw, but for the cumulative effect of all lives, of all generations. He saw a very bleak sequence of generation to generation. And here's the thing. It gets better is an attractive slogan, and there may be ways in which it's true, but many have reason and good reason to believe that it gets worse is reality. Now, does that mean that we give up? No, I think that there are a lot of ways in which believers ought to be looking at our own families, at our own workplaces, at our own circumstances, and say, hey, how can we make these better? And collaboratively, we ought to be looking at how to improve all kinds of such relationships and situations. But that's not going to change the reality that we live in a sin-cursed world that we ourselves continue to contribute to. Nonetheless, we want reason for hope. And as a married man with children, although admittedly fewer than the average of the pastoral team at Church of the Valley, uh, and most importantly, as someone who has met Jesus, let me give you some reason for hope. The question is, how does this all turn out? And I'll just give you the cheat. God is our only answer, our only source of help, because where else do you look? Are you really going to find an answer there? How's that going? Okay, let's look at a few verses throughout the scriptures that talk about what's going to happen. Um, the first thing is Isaiah 43, 11. I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. We have to look straight to God. It's not going to be a political figure. It's not going to be a family member. It's not going to be one of our friends or pastors or... It's got to be God. Job adds an interesting twist. Job says, God is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. And keep reading that passage if you turn to it, because uh, it, you want to talk about uh, hints of the gospel. This is one, and it, it continues for a little ways. And what Job is saying is we desperately need someone to stand between us and God. All right. New Testament, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he had suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You say, Mike, I don't know what that is. Don't worry about it right now. He's a special high priest. 
the suffering caused by the curse of sin has been redeemed by Jesus' life, but it's also been redeemed in Jesus' life. Jesus' life somehow was perfected by suffering. By going through the things that the curse has brought, Jesus became perfected. Did that mean he was imperfect before? I, I wouldn't say so. What I would say is that Jesus needed to experience the fullness of what we experienced in our cursed world, in our broken relationships, in our difficult work, in order to be the Savior for people like us. Okay, Hebrews 7, a little later. Now, there have been many of those priests, not the order of Melchizedek, but just priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? Priests keep dying. And so there's been a ton of them. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Okay, so Jesus is alive forever and therefore Jesus never fails. Jesus is playing a part in my salvation, and he can play a part in your salvation that only Jesus can play. Only Jesus can do what Jesus does, and there's nothing else that can do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 to 25, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead must come also through a man. For as in Adam all die, that's the curse, so in Christ all will be made alive. And you want to talk about how cursing is death and blessing is life? Adam cursed us, the new Adam Jesus has made us alive in him. But each in turn, Christ, who's the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Don't you want to belong to him? If you belong to him, don't you want to celebrate? Don't you want to rejoice because of what he gives in terms of hope, in terms of a break from the past? We're not going down Larkin's coastal shelf. We are stepping toward the presence of God. And Jesus had to be a man in order to save human beings from death. Jesus had to be a man in order to save human beings from death. That's so important. He had to be fully man in order for us to have the curse broken, for us to be in God's presence. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-25, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. No enemy survives confrontation with Jesus. The serpent got to slither away from this uh, garden encounter. But when Jesus is through, there will be no more serpent. There will be no more dragon. There will be no more Satan. There will be no more curse. Colossians 1, 19 to 23, for God was pleased to have all his dwellness uh, all his fullness dwell in him. 
God had all his fullness dwell in Jesus. What does that mean? God and Jesus are of the same essence. I already said that Jesus has to be fully man to be an appropriate sacrifice, but guess what? He also has to be fully God in order to receive the sacrifice. And through him, through Jesus, God reconciles to himself all things, things on earth or things on heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. To reconcile us to God, Jesus had to be God. Yeah, that's right. I said he had to be fully man, and I said he had to be fully God, and only one person could do that. As a consequence, amazing things happen. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, our thoughts and our actions were evil, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to prevent you, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Satan's an accuser. Oh, he's a shamer. But now in Christ, I'm free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in what? The gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant, of which I, Mike, have become a servant, to which Tim, Pastor Tim, has become a servant. And you know what? Our lives have changed. Ah, our only hope in the face of difficulty is the gospel of Jesus. We never return to the garden. We never return to the garden. The garden's not important anymore because we never need to. Here's what happens in the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 with me. John is seeing a vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. We don't need a garden anymore because the city of God is going to contain trees that provide everything that we need for sustenance and living. The presence of God is going to provide everything that we need. No longer, verse 3, will there be any curse. You want hope? It's in Jesus because Jesus is going to change everything and he's going to make a place for us in which the curse is gone. He's suffered already the consequences of the curse on our behalf. And now he's making a place for you and for me. Do you want him? Do you want this hope? He is offering it to you in his person. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. You got to be a servant to follow him. You got to want to put your pride aside and do what he says. He's going to be an authoritarian leader, but he's going to be the most gracious, thoughtful, authoritarian leader ever because he knows exactly what you and I need. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. Whatever happens in this world, I belong to Jesus. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Laws of physics don't even have to play with them anymore, and they will reign forever and ever. There's no no second sin. There's no second curse. God's plan, realized in Jesus Christ, overcomes sin in the garden and overcomes your sin as well as mine. How are you going to respond to that, church? Are you going to thank God for the gift of Jesus? Are you going to wrestle with what's wrong in the world and weigh whether the hope that Christ offers is compelling for you? Are you going to turn your back and say, yeah, that was nice. Let's, let's keep moving. There's so many ways to respond to this. And what I hope that you're going to do is reflect on this. And I'm going to close in prayer in a minute, but this is the kind of thing that community groups are for. Accountability and discipleship partners are what this is for, because the hope in Christ is something we ought to be talking about. It's something we ought to be encouraging each other with, because we live in a sin-cursed world. We have hard things going on in our lives and in our families. The deck is stacked against humankind at this point. But our King Jesus has changed all that. Let's remind one another of that reality. Let's remind one another of how he has overcome our sin. Last thing I'm going to say is, when you give to Church of the Valley, give out of that heart of gratitude. If you don't have that heart of gratitude, we don't need your money. What we want from you is for you to see and appreciate the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's offered. And if you've understood that and received it for the past 60 years, it really doesn't matter because today's the day to praise God for it again. And that's what I'm going to do. God, I praise you that you didn't leave me where you found me. And I praise you that you have been transforming my life in a way that has been fruitful in my marriage and fruitful in my family and fruitful in workplaces, even as all of those have had difficult times. And I ask that you would be with each one of us as we think about the difficulties in our family, in the world around us, in our labors. Would you for each one of us, clarify how Jesus is our hope. And would you allow us to testify to your goodness and your grace in breaking at last the hold of that curse of sin and death on those who are willing to bow to our King. And I thank you for Jesus, for his willingness to suffer, even though he didn't deserve to suffer, but I did. And I thank you that he bore my sin. Will you allow us to praise you for his work? In Christ's name, we are gratefully praying. Amen. Love you, Church of the Valley.